before I started. I put on Facebook today, uh, this week rather, a uh, pamphlet that uh, John Piper wrote several years ago, recently in fact. Um, it's titled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Um, it's, it's a pretty important piece. It's not long. There are, I don't remember how many, there are 11, maybe 11 basic statements he makes in a paragraph or so associated with each one. Uh, but I'd, I'd really encourage you to read it and perhaps even print it off. I, I don't remember how long it was, maybe 22 pages or something like that, and give it to folks uh, who are struggling. Uh, Piper himself, uh, Piper is a pastor of a, of a Bethel Baptist Church, I think it is. Is that right, Luke? Do you know? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, yeah. Uh, in He's retired, that's right, Minnesota. He's retired, but uh, he's had a huge impact in evangelicalism in the last several years. Uh, but he had cancer, and because of the cancer, he, he meditated on what he was going through and figuring out. You, you don't have to have cancer to read this. Just take whatever, take cancer out and put whatever you got in it, <laughs> and and um, and uh, uh, substitute that. Um, that that's. I, I hoped some of you would see that and and maybe click on the link and and go there and download it. I, it's so it's so valuable. Uh, this is the kind. These are the kinds of things Mother said when she was going through cancer. Uh, so I, I just. This is comes with a reality that somebody like I don't have, because uh, I've not been through those kinds of things. So, um, just encourage you to that. Uh, use it for yourself. Use it for others that you know who need help in the midst of very very hard times. Um, one of the I started starting again. I've just hit re, rewind. <laughs> for those of you who know what rewind means. Most of you do. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one of the problems we have is we deal with an omnipotent God. He, does, he doesn't have to depend on my strength. Um, all of my training has been, you've got to stand on your own two feet. You've got to take responsibility for yourself. Are you with me here? Uh, but God doesn't need my strength. In fact, my strength gets in his way. It's my weakness that is the best thing that I've got going for me. And I hate that. I hate being weak. I abhor it. I suspect, this is way off the subject, but it's, it's kind of related. I suspect that your spiritual gifting is in the area of your greatest weakness. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Um, so where I'm strong, I think I can do what I need to do. But it's where I'm weak that I have to have the Holy Spirit. Um, so so back to the point, we're in Isaiah 30. We didn't get through chapter 30 last time. Um, uh, but I think maybe we did some important things. Um, useful things, worthwhile things last week. But I want to pick it up toward the end of the passage that we looked at last week. I want to pick it up at verse 15. 
um, this is still, we're still in this woe passage, this whole long section where God is pronouncing judgment on Judah and, uh, and on the northern kingdom, Israel. Verse, four, verse 15, Isaiah 30, 15. I hear some of you still turning. It's page 939. Uh, uh, so, um, I got to be um, For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. I, I haven't commented on this phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Let me do that now so I won't have to do it later. Uh, he, is, he is the Holy One of Israel, not in that he is so morally pure. It is that he has exclusively given himself to Israel. No other nation has the relationship that God has with, with them. Does this make sense to you? He is the Holy One of Israel. He has given ex- himself exclusively to them. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Uh, we're, we're going to see in verse 18 a, a strange statement. Uh, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. You may have longs to be gracious with, to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I looked at this word last week and I concluded that probably what's in view here is intends, God's intent is to be gracious to you. But let's get there. Verse, what's the problem? Because they're unwilling. They want, they want to do things for themselves. Um, that was our problem with our son. He wanted to do things for himself. For himself? For himself. <laughs> uh, they... He just had an independent spirit in him from the very beginning. I was talking to one of the pastors here at the church uh, just before service, and he's, they were dedicating their baby this today. And, and he said, we've got a three-year-old and a newborn, nine-week-old. And he said, um, the, the three-year-old, I think I, there's something wrong with the boy. <laughs> no, he's a boy. That's what's wrong. He's a boy. <laughs> uh, but... You were unwilling. You, you want to defeat, you want to get a plan going that's going to defeat the Assyrians. And I remind you, we're talking about the Assyrian threat to Judah and Israel, specifically to Judah in this passage. You want to get an alliance with a lot of nations together. You want to lead them. You want power. You want, you want victory in battle. You're not going to get it because these are the Assyrians. You were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon steeds. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord intends to be gracious to you, and therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. We talked last week about justice. 
Justice is a strange concept to our minds in Scripture because justice for us means something you do to the wicked. Yes? Uh, So we want justice. We want wicked people punished. Uh, But in Scripture, it's the justice of God by which he saves. That's that's remarkable. We we may have looked, I think we did, at Isaiah 46. Um, what, what, what verse is that? Um, 46, uh, 12 or so, last week. Um, 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness... I bring my righteousness near. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. This is poetry. And one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry is that you have um, parallel lines that are tied together some way, either synonymously or antithetically, and then there are variations in that. Um, Yes, Fred. Jim, another question on Hebrew poetry. Okay. Can, can I go on with this and then? No, rhyme would be useless in Hebrew. Everything sounds like everything else. That's the part of the problem of learning beginning Hebrew. <laughs> everything sounds like everything else. Am I right, Luke? Yes, Every verbs are put. What? Yes. Okay. I thought you said I guess so. <laughs> Did you say I guess so? No. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, no, rhyme is irrelevant. And meter is there, but they, we don't understand it. The, the point is that you make a statement, then you echo it in a following line, uh, either by way of contrast or by way of saying the same thing, but expanding the idea. So the righteousness of God, what is it? It's salvation. That's stunning to me. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and I, I, there are reasons to, to relate to a verse like Isaiah 46 in this context. I won't go into it in detail at this point. The Lord intends to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. For the Lord is a God of justice. He shows mercy because he's a God of justice. Are you with me here? So it becomes very clear if you're just paying attention. Um, Some of the words that you need to pay most attention to in your study of the Bible are these connecting words, uh, prepositions, but in this case, conjunctions. For, therefore, because, uh, when, while, even though, all these. You need to pay special attention to that because that's where in English we show the connection, the logical connection from thought to thought. Hebrew does this too, but Hebrew has far fewer of these words than we do. And so it's harder to trace, trace in Hebrew than it is in English, but the, exit, the, the translators have, have spelled these things out for us. So blessed are those who wait for him. I want to pick up then for our morning at verse 19. This is the background. What is it that God intends to do for Judah? Well, it's in, I'm further back than I thought it was. Um, Let's 
Um, oy vey. Oh, well, here. This will have to do. Uh, 3019 to 26. Uh, Judah's blessing. So verse 19. Here, what does it look like when God shows mercy to Judah? First of all, he takes them into judgment to weaken them. Uh, in chapter 5 and in chapter 8 uh, or 10, is it 10? I think it is. Chapter 5 and 10 of Isaiah, several times God will say um, something that I've forgotten. <laughs> it was there a minute ago. That's Son of Solomon. It didn't sound right. <laughs> didn't sound like this passage. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I'm not going to find it quickly. Uh, For all this, his hand is still raised up. His arm is not turned back. Something along that line. I'm sorry, what I was looking for in that other passage was uh, the Lord alone will be exalted in those days. No other glory may stand in his presence. Now, when the high priest is ministering in his day-to-day task, he wears glorious robes. But on the Day of Atonement, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, takes off the glorious robes and puts on just clean linen. Uh, yes, uh, and jingle bells, <laughs> uh, but no rope on the leg. So the, the point is, no glory may stand in God's presence. All glory must be his. Not because he's so self-centered, but because, folks, would you take one of your children's, one of your grandchildren's, um, <laughs> no, that changed the, the changed the changed the deal, didn't it? Take one of your ch- grandchildren's crayon drawings and hang it up next to the Mo- Mona Lisa in the Louvre. No, just on the refrigerator, yes. And uh, eventually, you have to say, okay, when you get a new one, we have to take one off. Which one shall we take off? Yes. So, <laughs> uh, the uh, there is beauty in this world. Yeah, <laughs> there is beauty in this world, but that beauty ultimately is a reflection of God's glory. It's not what we have done for God; it's what He has done for us. Are you with me here? So, in in a very real sense, the judgment we just read about in verses fifteen and following is essential for God to do what He intends to do for Israel. They cannot ever have any any strength left because it must be seen how gracious he is how glorious is his grace and mercy and if i have done something by my strength that has gained glory for god then i have effectively robbed god of glory all glory must be his because 
he is more beautiful, he is more glorious, he is more wonderful, he is more excellent than the Mona Lisa. I don't know that it's the greatest painting in all of history, but people think it is and spend an awful lot of time and effort to get there. Yes? It's tiny. It's, it is tiny, I've heard that. Uh, my, my point is, folks, even the Mona Lisa in his presence must be burned. Because there is no beauty in it when it's compared to the excellence of God. And he would be wrong to mask his excellence to his creatures. It would be wrong in him to do that. It would be wrong to put a, put a, a, a covering over the Mona Lisa and not let anybody see it. There it is, hanging in the Louvre, and put, a, put some kind of a covering over it and not let anybody see it. What's the point of an art museum if it's not to see the art? Yes? So it's wrong to hide the glory of the Mona Lisa. How much worse is it for God to hide his glory or let mere human glory get in its way? So the Lord intends to be gracious to you. And here's his grace comes to them first in weakening them in 15 to 17 and then 19 and following. Here's what God's going to do. Uh, so in... Uh, 19 to 26, there is justice for Judah, but this justice is in a new sense. We talked about that last time. Press on by that. Uh, let's go on to verse 26. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What is this time going to be like? It's going to be like the time of the greatness of Hezekiah. Because he's talking about the deliverance from the Assyrians. Verse 20. And though the, and, um, though the Lord give you uh, the bread of adversity and the water of, of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. Isn't that an interesting concept? Let's move on here. Uh, and your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved images overlaid with silver uh, and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them to, as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed which you, with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will, be, uh, will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which, uh, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. You winnow the grain you give your animals? And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. This, this cannot be a reference to, to... Sorry, let me say it differently. This cannot be taken literally because 
if you increase the light of the sun seven times, it'd burn everybody on the earth. Yes? So what's the point? Well, he just talked about, uh, look back at verse uh, uh, 19. I'm sorry, there, is that the worst the verse I want? Um, verse 20. Uh, the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and uh, the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. You will have light. Yes? It, it, it will be so clear and obvious and plain what's happening. It'll be as if you were walking in the light of seven days all in one day. So, um, where were we there? Verse 26. Um, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the burden, the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of, of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations and to, with a sieve of destruction and to place the jaws of the peoples, the bridle that leads astray. So he's going to judge the enemies of Judah. Do you follow this? Yes, no? Yes? Now, uh, Fred, go ahead. Yeah. 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 In some sense, yeah. Um, the, but I want you to remember, folks. Uh, I heard a fellow say the other day that was an event. Events don't say anything. There's some truth in that. Events always have to have interpretation. If I were standing on the banks of the Red Sea the day that God parted it, uh, that, that God parted it, and the people walked across, if I were a Baal worshiper, I would have said, look what Baal did, because Baal controls the water. He walks on it in Canaanite theology. Are you with me here? So without the interpretive word, the event doesn't tell me anything, but the way God uses events is to say what he has done in the past, he will repeat in the future. The pattern is established. Are you with me here? So the way God uses the events and the way he uses, tells us about things. The story of Balaam. Yes, you know the story of Balaam. The only thing you remember is talking donkey. Amen. One of the most remarkably funny verses in all of scripture. The, the donkey turns around at the enraged prophet, looks at him in the eye and he says, am I not your donkey? And, and Balaam doesn't get it. That has to be the funniest. He, he's the prophet who sees. That's the text. That's 23 and 24 of, of Numbers. He's the prophet who sees. But he can't see the angel and he can't understand what the donkey is talking about. But the story of Balaam reiterates the story of Pharaoh. And the story of Ruth reiterates the exodus of, of Abraham. Going out to a land that's not her own. Yes? Are you with me here? Why, why is that there? Because God is a God who puts patterns in the text for us to come to recognize and watch for 
And when he tells us about a work he's going to do, he's all not just talking about what he's going to do in the days of Judah and Assyria, but what it's going to look like in days to come. So verse 20 again, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Why does he do that? To take away all our strength. To make us return to him and find our strength in him. When I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. So, though he give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will, will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher. Jesus. And only in the first coming. Well, this is talking about the days of Judah and Assyria, 8th century B.C. But he's setting up patterns. Your eyes will see your teacher. What, what does John tell us in John chapter 1 about seeing God? No man has seen God at any time. Yes? So what does it mean to see your teacher? Here in your text may have, as mine does, the, the word teacher capitalized. And that's probably right. That's probably exactly what we're going to see. The passage, previous passage has been talking about making the prophets deaf. The ears of Israel are deaf. The seers of Israel are blind. Now he's going to give them light. Are you with me here? Yes. My passage says, but your teachers will not be moved into a corner. <laughs> yeah. Your eyes will see your teachers. Yeah. It sounds like they have been setting aside their prophets. Yeah, well, they... There are false prophets who are functioning all through this period. Go back and read Kings sometime. As a background to um, Isaiah, read 2 Kings, uh, especially after chapter, uh, well, no, um, read 2 Kings. Uh, They have all kinds of false prophets. But the true prophets, they know are prophets of the Lord, but they won't listen to them and they don't want them to talk. Well, as long as the false prophets tell them what they want to hear, then that's fine. But uh, um, they. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, King of Judah is smart enough to recognize. That's right. But that's Jehoshaphat. But that's Jehoshaphat, who is a godly man himself. Um, so I can expect that of Jehoshaphat. It's Ahab. Ahab. Yes, there is a prophet of the Lord, Ahab says. <laughs> but I hate him because he never says anything good for me. <laughs> well, <laughs> are, you, are you with me here? So even the, even the wicked people know there's a prophet of God around. They know these guys are not prophets of the Lord. They speak in the name of the Lord, but they, as Jeremiah will say, they speak messages that they have made out of their own minds. Um, so, chapter uh, verse 27 now. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning. So there's judgment coming. Judgment for whom now? Above, in the early part of chapter 30, the judgment was for Judah. Who's the judgment for here? Assyria. For Assyria. And you know that, especially from the last two lines of verse 28. 
to sift nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that, that leads astray. The result is going to be, verses 29 and following, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. Every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. So... Um, the Lord will be the percussion section. Yeah, yeah, but I, the, the, the stroke that falls, uh, that's, he's the percussion section. <laughs> that's my point. Uh, so uh, so uh, battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, and fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. <laughs> There's judgment coming. And we will see it in chapters 36 and 37. Um, the nice thing in this book is, what Isaiah says, what Isaiah 8, what the people were saying in Isaiah 8 was, let the Lord do something so that we may know that it's the Lord. Okay. It's coming. I'm going to make you weak, weaker than you ever dreamed you could be. You're going to find no strength left, nothing to rely on, but me. Because in returning... How did it say it back there? Um, in returning and in rest shall you be saved. Not in fighting, but in returning and in rest shall you be saved. Is that returning there, the returning from bondage? No, because they're not in bondage. This is Judah still in the land. But, I mean, it's returning. Bondage, yeah. Just being beat down and no, no. They're no, no. They're returning to the Lord. They're turning from their idols, <laughs> folks. The the least reasonable thing for a man of the earth is to believe that there's a reality beyond the earth that is that determines our reality. Th this is our whole culture. Now, for pagan peoples. They, they would say, well, we believe in a reality beyond the earth. No, you don't. Because your gods were made just like the earth was made, out of nothing, out of what existed before. <laughs> well, what existed before? We don't know, but we know it had to come from something. Because not, ha, what, do you not remember the music? What was it? Uh, song, Sound of Music? Julie Andrews, that great song, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. See, there cannot be a reality that is not bound up in this earth. Every god of the nations is bound up in this earth. With the one exception, 
um, I'm talking here now about the pagans. Uh, the God of Islam is not bound to this earth. He is completely unrelated to this earth. He made it, but he, has, he is absolute. He lives in no relations. Are you with me here? Um, so when I'm talking about the pagans, and our culture is a pagan culture because we believe everything that is can be explained on the basis of everything that is. Tom, I'm sorry I put you off. Yeah, Tophet, yeah, yeah. It's a Hebrew word. <laughs> uh, it's a reference to the um, valley of uh, the, the Kidron Valley. Um, yeah, the burning place. It's it's a it was where the trash was thrown out for Jude, Jerusalem. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Um, so the gods of the nations are the gods of the suns, of the sun, and of the moon, and of the storm. Are you with me here? Yes, no? What is the application to us? The application to us is we've got to have a God who's from outside. God, we've got to, we've got to find our resources not in this order of creation, but in the source of the creation, namely God. It's the same for us as it is for them. But it's going to mean, probably, um, weakening. Um, how, how, how much have we talked about this in, we, in recent months? Uh, uh, the first series of sermons that I ever got on recorded, in recorded form was a series of sermons on James by a guy named uh, David Cotton from Oklahoma City. My parents sent me tapes every, what was it, every two weeks that they came, and I just devoured them because Cotton, I, I already knew Cotton. Uh, he, he's been a, I think he's still living. He's, he's been a friend of our family for more than 50 years. Um, but uh, uh, he, he was huge on the idea uh, he had come from a prosperity group, went through Dallas Seminary, and, uh, and <laughs> gave up that. He was huge on talking about suffering and its role in the Christian life. And folks, everybody you know, everybody you meet, every day of your life is either suffering or they're coming out of suffering or they're going into suffering. Everybody. And you've got to have a message for them. A message of prosperity, health, and wealth will get them nothing. The only thing that we've got to offer is strength in the midst of suffering. And in the midst of suffering, the only thing I have to offer is an omnipotent God whose omnipotence is best shown in our greatest weakness. <clears throat> Think about Jesus in the manger. Eternal God. This is the day to mention movies. Robin Williams in Aladdin. Enormous cosmic power. Itty bitty wee living space. <laughs> uh, here is the omnipotent God in an infant who can't even control his bodily functions. Can't speak. His infant mind cannot understand language. 
It's in, it's in weakness that God makes known his strength. And it's in the arm of Jesus. Could Jesus make a, a stone that was too big for him to pick up? Absolutely yes. Because he determined to live his life completely dependent upon his father. Nothing revealing through himself, nothing of his deity except what was essential, what he could not help to reveal. Righteousness, mercy, are you with me here? But the strength, the miracles were all the work of the Holy Spirit, thus Matthew chapter 12 and the um, unpardonable sin. The, The whole point, folks, is that Jesus lived in weakness. And it was in his weakness that the, that the grandeur of the Father was revealed. So when Nicodemus came to him, John chapter 3, we, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no one can do the, the, the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. It's not his own power. It's God working in him. Do you, do you follow this? So he intends to live as weak as weak as we must be, as we in fact are. We've just had enough opportunities to feel strong <laughs> that we don't realize how weak we really are. I wanted to ask you, because verse 20 in particular, yeah. because this is really an incredible truth. <clears throat> it, what you just talked about is what I was wondering about. Wasn't it really in, in this verse, isn't that like, the hypostatic union and kenosis coming together. Not in that verse, but it's referring to what that's going to be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they will see their teacher. <laughs> but it, and it was in weakness. Yeah. Born in a uh-huh. danger, poverty. Yeah. He, 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 he reiterates the life story of Israel in his, in his own life. He, he goes to Egypt and comes back repatriated. He, he lives the story of Israel in his own life. It had to be, I would think, it would be difficult for the disciples because when Peter Peter made the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus later tells him, nobody knows the exact hour of my return yeah. except my Father. He deliberately limited himself. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's what the whole issue of who was God in mm-hmm. flesh yeah. comes into play. Yeah. He's demonstrating to us, I'm willing to do that. Yeah. So you have to be willing mm-hmm. to live in weakness yeah. too. So the whole point of this passage is that God intends to save Israel by making them weak. <laughs> and when their capacity to meet the Assyrian army is... Com- they don't have any capacity to meet the Assyrian army. <laughs> Isaiah 36, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can put a horseman on them, I'll give them to you. Right this minute. They don't have 2,000 horsemen. So they don't have any capacity to meet the Assyrian army, but they think they do. Our team is always better than your team. Amen? We've got the best team. This is the best team we've had in years. Amen? Uh, well, unless you're talking about the Cowboys. <laughs> uh, so so uh, the, I've got to learn to give up on my strength and find all my strength in the Lord. There is no other place for strength anyway. I mentioned to you, I think last week, a pastor called to the side of a dying woman and she said, Pastor, I cannot remember any of the promises of God. And he said, 
That may be true, but God can remember them. And she was able to rest. Um, Then it doesn't matter how weak you get. In fact, it matters desperately how weak you get. It matters so desperately that God is working to make you weak. (laughs) He's working through, now, for, for many of us, through age. Yes? Infirmity. Yes? But he's been doing this all our lives. Every hardship you've ever gone through was to produce in you the likeness of Jesus. I say again, he is not about teaching us lessons. He's about producing the likeness of Jesus. He's not intending to make us smart. He's, make, he's intending to make us Christ-like. And he can't make us Christ-like when we're strong. He makes us Christ-like when we're beaten when we are weak beyond imagination. Then he works wonders. Let's go with prayer. Father, I don't like this message, and yet I love it. I don't know what to do except to teach it. I don't, I don't know how to put chapter 30 together if this isn't something like what you're trying to say in this passage. So, Father, if this is true... Seal it in our minds, in our hearts. Teach me to embrace weakness. I don't. I want to be strong. I don't want to look foolish. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look silly. But teach me to embrace it. Because, Father, that is when your strength is set free and can be shown. And I will be, as as our brother Howard Hendricks used to say, we have this treasure in common everyday peanut butter jars they're clear so we can see what's in we will be clear so that your glory your strength your power your wisdom can be shown in us so please deal with us gently but deal with us thoroughly father for jesus sake amen